Thank you for joining us today on 20 Minute Takes. My name is Nikki Toyamasito. I'm the Executive Director for Christians for Social Action. And today I talk with Pastor Rich Viotas of New Life Fellowship in New York City, as well as the author of The Deeply Formed Life. And he's going to be talking to us about the prophetic nature of responding in non-anxious ways in anxious times. Pastor Rich, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Nikki, so good to be with you again. So I think one of the things that happened for me in the midst of the pandemic is I remember opening up the newspaper and seeing a picture of Elmhurst Hospital mm-hmm. as you all were like the forefront of the pandemic. Um, and, and that's the community in, in which your church is located. Is that right? Yeah, we're about one mile actually away from Elmhurst Hospital. So uh, it was a very real thing for us. Can you tell me a little bit of what, what was it like to pastor in the midst of uh, a global pandemic that everyone was just beginning to learn about? Incredibly disorienting. On, on one level, I remember the first time Elmhurst Hospital was featured like uh, in the New York Times and in CNN. And I look up and go, that's our neighborhood. Like, what are we doing there? <laughs> right. And right. just hearing about stories from local congregants and families, New Life, we didn't personally get touched. I mean, we had uh, one of our uh, uh, older congregants in his 80s uh, died early on uh, because of COVID, someone who was beloved in our congregation. But for the most part, the people who were dying were family members of congregants. And so I'd say in April and May, uh, there were instances where, you know, I'd be on a call with someone and I get on another call right after that. And then another one right after that, hearing about who was on a ventilator, who was dying. So it was, it was incredibly disorienting. In addition to that, I live two miles from Elmhurst hospital. So on Queens Boulevard, which was, it's a major boulevard in Queens, hearing the sound of sirens nonstop that would fade into the background. And it, was, it wasn't uh, for months on end, but I, I, probably a good three, four weeks where nonstops, it, would just, it, w- it became just the background noise of our daily existence. So that was incredibly disorienting. You know, we made tons of phone calls to try to shepherd our congregation well and see how people were doing and all that. But it, it was it, disorienting. I think it's a word that fits not just my experience, but everyone's experience. But having this level of proximity to the Elmhurst Hospital and what was happening here, it was cr- quite a crazy existence. Wow. And w- would you? how has that experienced shaped, changed in form, either your approach as a pastor or your church's uh, understanding of being a part of that community? I don't know, any reflections about the intensity of that time and, and what you're kind of carrying away from that? What's What's unique about the intensity is it, it's hard to silo COVID and the pandemic from the other realities of our world. And so we live, the kind of the language that I've been using is we're in a CPR existence that where our hearts are failing and our breathing has been impacted. And by CPR, I'm talking about living in a COVID, politically hostile, racially unjust world. Uh, and so when, the con- when you look at the convergence of those three realities, 
which is our reality in 2020 and remains our reality, it, it makes it that much more intense. And so having to navigate the political terrain and, and, and the anxiety of people, I think the biggest lesson for me as a pastor has been, and just I think as a Christian for that matter, has been my most important task is to, by God's grace, remain as a non-anxious presence. Um, and if, if my anxiety is through the roof and everybody else, you know, the only thing that's more transmissible than COVID is anxiety. <laughs> and so <laughs> if, if, if my anxiety is through the roof, everybody else is going to take, you know, experience that. So I knew my task and I was telling our leaders and our pastors that, you know, we need to have a life with God. We need to engage in the very practical realities of serving poor families and underserved families in our community, as we always have, especially in time. But our biggest task is to remain a non-anxious presence. I think that has been the most important learning besides the fact that, I mean, <laughs> things nowadays, when things don't work out, you know, the Zoom doesn't work. The service doesn't scream. We lost, you know, we lost internet connection last week and during a Sunday service. For me, I'm still using that word, that phrase, you know, we're in a pandemic. I mean, it just makes, puts everything in perspective when the Zoom goes <laughs> off. It's just like, whatever, we're in a pandemic. So I've learned, I don't know how, when I need to stop using that phrase and when that phrase expires, <laughs> but I'm still using it as much as I can. <laughs> Wow, so this the prophetic presence of the non-action presence. I mean, how number one, I mean, just wow. Um, because I don't know that I've heard many people sort of say actually that that is our faithfulness task mm -hmm. in this moment. How do you feed that non-anxious presence in the midst of a world that is feeling very uncertain? And, and in the midst of, of communities that are fragile, um, and in the midst of things that, you know, actually there are some things that are truly worrying. Yeah. Yeah. To say non-anxious presence, to, to clarify some of what I mean, it's, it's not that anxiety doesn't touch me. Okay. Um, it's, it's not that you're all Zen all the time. No, no, anxiety. It's, it's, it's that I am not being driven by reactivity. Uh, which I, I think is the important nuance here. I mean, to be human is to be anxious, but anxiety is this, you know, it's, it's an automatic response to a real or perceived threat. And we're acting out of our emotionality, not out of our reflection, contemplation, thoughtfulness, prudence. It's just, it's the amygdala at work. It's the lizard brain at work. Uh, we, are, we are now bound by reactivity. And so to, to say non-anxious presence is not to say I don't experience. Over the past year, I've experienced significant points of anxiety. People leaving the church, people wondering why are we wearing masks, why haven't we opened up yet, and all the, all the rest. But for me, the task has been how do I remain connected to God in prayer, in particular for me and my own rhythms in contemplative prayer, and how do I have a commitment to interior examination, where I am focusing on my own reaction, my own reactivity, my own difficult emotions, and how that now shapes the way I show up in the world as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. But I don't, I don't know if any of this happens without the level of contemplative rhythms, as well as a commitment to interior examination. And 
this is not easy work. So I'm not, I don't want to paint a picture like this is so wonderful when I get up in the morning and my coffee's already brewed and I pray to God and, <laughs> and, you know, and, no, not at all. Um, it's commitment. However, I, I don't know if we can get to a place where we are. And I like what you said, joining a prophetic, non-anxious presence in this moment without that commitment to prayer and interior examination. Mm. So, I mean, you are in one of the most intense and looked upon cities in the world. Mm -hmm. You pastor a large church that's a significant part of your community. You've got children and responsibilities. Can you give us just a morsel of what some of that inserting the places for self-reflection or or prayer looks like in the midst of, uh, I mean, you're not, you're not hanging out in a, a setting that really makes that super easy uh, uh, for you. So can you give us a little bit of, of a morsel of what does that commitment look like? How do you jam that into your schedule or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, um, it's true. There, there are no mountains or monasteries <laughs> situated behind me. I have subways. I have uh, fire trucks, you know, there's, and very tall buildings around me. And so that's my New York existence. But I, I think part of it, when I think about my own rhythms, it usually begins for me whenever I talk about how I try to cultivate a life with God in this way that allows me to uh, withstand some of the pressures of being in the context I'm in. I think it begins, first of all, with just Sabbath, a commitment to Sabbath. So my family and I, we keep Sabbath on Friday night to 6 p.m. to Saturday night, 6 p.m., 24-hour period where I stop all my paid and unpaid work, um, giving myself to rest and reflection and recreation with our family. And, and so that, for me, is the pillar of the week in terms of what informs the rest of my days. It is that Sabbath where it's a clean break from the rest of the week. And for me to stop the work that I do, I'm fully cognizant that the work doesn't stop, that the needs don't end. But uh, for me, it's a recognition that I'm not holding all these things together. Christ is. You know, it, it's Colossians 1.17. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Uh, that That's not an excuse for lack of planning and delegating appropriately, but it's for me, it's the deeper reality of my heart of who's in charge here. And so the Sabbath for me, I think, is the, is the starting point. But for, for me as, and I, I recognize that I'm a pastor, so your listeners, it might not be a, a total parallel here in terms of my vocation, their vocation, and how they live out their days. But as a pastor, you know, in our culture I, at New Life, I get paid to pray. Now, you know, so it's part of just, you know, when I was hired, uh, 13 years. Yesterday was my first day, my 13th anniversary. Working congratulations. At- Happy anniversary. I, I didn't even know our, our treasurer sent us, uh, sent me an email. I said, congratulations, Rich. I was like, for what? And she said, you, you made 13 years here. So I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but when I got hired, you know, my, my predecessor essentially said before I uh, became the lead pastor that, you know, if, if my life is not committed to uh, rhythms and Sabbath and and prayer, I'm not going to make it long here because I, I would not have a life deep enough to sustain the work I'm doing. And so for me, it's in, it's in the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, that I, I must 
mark out time, whether it's five minutes, whether it's 20 minutes, whether it's 30 minutes for that level of reflection, prayer, examination. And so whether it comes in the morning, whether it comes midday, whether it comes before I go to bed, various days are going to give me, um, not, not every day is the same. So I just, but, but the, the principle is, am I intentionally getting that kind of slow down time with God on a regular basis? And so at, at the end of the day, it, I have no excuses as much as I'm on social media, as much as I'm on, just, you know, just scrolling through my phone, there is no excuse about where do I find the time? There's plenty of time to be found <laughs> with all of what time is wasted on other things. But for me, it's kind of prioritizing, you know, vocationally. If, if I don't do this, my soul is in trouble and those that I lead are in trouble as well. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, when I think of the things that are distinctive about New Life Community, I think about um, the integration of spiritual formation with mm-hmm. the life of the church. And I also think about the commitment to racial justice and reconciliation and how both of those two things, as well as uh, just deep engagement with the local community uh, mm-hmm. to me seem to really mark or feel to me distinctive uh, about uh, the church community that you're part of and that you lead. Can you comment just a little bit about either how those things work together? Can you unpack a bit about what does racial justice mm-hmm. look like lived out in the practices of your church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one one of the big commitments we've had over three decades. So I've been here for 13 years, but our church has been in existence since 1987. So, you know, we're in our 34th year. And over the years, I would say this has inductively un, you know, unfolded over the years. It's not like we started and said, these are five particular values that we want our congregation to be identified by. It was in the trial and error. It was in the uh, crises and pain that we began to discover what are the theological and formational commitments that we want to give ourselves to. And so I just want to say that this was this has unfolded, which I think is the normal, natural way of just being human, that things unfold. We don't have the answers ahead of time. We learn as we go. But it is that reality that life unfolds. And you know, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite Kierkegaard quotes is, you know, life is lit forward, but understood backwards. That's it's, it's when I look back that I understand, uh, I usually don't understand that in the moment. And so things need to be subject to change. So over the years, what we've tried to do and through our learnings, through our failures, through our pain is try to hold together a really a robust, comprehensive formational and theological framework. The language that I use is our task is to resist formational compartmentalization, which essentially says that certain things belong and other things don't. So for us, you know, we talk about contemplative rhythms, but we also talk about racial justice and reconciliation. We talk about interior examination, and we talk about living justly in the world and missionally in the world. So for us, it's it's really that we do want to hold together all these things, and we believe that the church must embody these things as a reflection of the kingdom of God. And, and in particular with race, we've worked really hard and have failed much over 34 years in this. But our theological convictions, being in a congregation, listen, New Life is National Geographic called Elmhurst uh, the most diverse zip code in the world. 
we have 75 nations represented within our community, 123 languages spoken in the neighborhood. You know, I took a picture of the ATM, the local Chase Bank ATM, one day when I was taking out $20 on the ATM, and there were about 15 languages on is the screen. Is that right? And when I, I took out my phone, I said, I, I got to take a picture. This is, this is <laughs> disorienting, you know? How do scroll I scroll through for you your language? Scrolling, you know? and, <laughs> you know, let me scroll through the English, and maybe if I can't, I'd be fine Spanish, but my Spanish isn't too great. So I don't want to, you know, <laughs> a bad decision here as well. Uh, so, but our commitment to racial justice has been at its core theological in nature. And we begin the conversation not just through sociological terms and understandings, but with theological convictions. And by theological convictions, you know, it's our understanding of the gospel. What is the gospel? That's right. And the gospel is not just an individual decision. It's not forgiveness of sins at its core. The gospel is not a postmortem experience. It's not an atonement theory. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. If that is the working assumption, presupposition of what the gospel is, that means there has to be significant outworkings of that good news in the world. And one of the ways that it's outworked is through our commitment to racial justice and reconciliation, which is part and parcel of the gospel, that the gospel exists not just to deal with individuals, but to demonstrate what a new family can look like in the name of Jesus, what new structures and systems can look like in the name of Jesus, what new relationships. And so we're talking individually, interpersonally, institutionally, all these things have to do with the good news of the gospel. And so for for me, when I think about race and, and all that, it begins theologically. But very practically, in terms of how we're working this out practically, so much, Nikki, of the work that I do as a pastor is in defining terms and defining outcomes. And I reckon we can give all the practices in the world, but if if we're not giving a larger framework as to why these practices are important, we're going to miss it. So, for example, even language like diversity. I love diversity. We love diversity. Our staff, our worship, our elders across the board. There's diversity. And in our context, that, you, know, you know, we're talking about male and female. We're talking about across the board, ethnic and racial, across the board there. But diversity is not the end goal of what we're getting at here. Because I, I like I tell our congregation, subway cars are diverse. <laughs> uh, and, and we're called to be more than just a sanctified subway car. Uh, we're, we're, we're called to be a people who are experiencing union, communion, solidarity. Uh, the sharing of power, and you could you could have diversity without all of that. How I try to define these things is what is our outcome? It's not diversity, and lots of folks have come to new life because they want diversity. But when I say that's not our goal, our goal is solidarity. Our goal is love. Our goal is sharing of power. Then go uh, people are like I don't know if I want to be here anymore because we're going to talk about some of these dynamics. But Ooh, uh, that cost is high, huh? Absolutely. I appreciate how you're able to clarify some of the things that I think we're just getting very confused on in society, Mm -hmm. that there's just a lot of swirling conversation around. On a little bit of a lighter note, have you ever had anyone quote you back to you? (laughs) And if so, what's that like? for, for, For our folks, 
Rich is a writer and a speaker and a profound voice on Twitter. So I was just curious if, because uh, I know people quote you to me all the time. I ha- you know, I have not had that experience of someone quoting me to me. However, I've had multiple times, my predecessor is a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who has written a lot of books on emotionally healthy relationships, the spirituality, discipleship, all, all that stuff yes, there. Yes. And so I get a lot of times people saying, oh, have you read Pete Scazzaro's material? <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> or, you know, uh, you would do well to read emotionally healthy spirituality. <laughs> Uh, that really unpacks what you're getting at here. Uh, we like that. we are the lab that 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 book came from. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, jokingly, a uh, little tongue in cheek here. I'm like, yeah, Pete, Pete got some of that from me. You know, so, uh, I, I've gotten much from him, and he's gotten some from me as well. So, uh, so I've gotten that from time to time. I love it. Well, I feel like this was just an appetizer. Pastor Rich, if there are, if folks want to either read your writings or follow you, where would they find you? Yeah. I mean, if they went to Twitter or Instagram, it's just at, you know, at Rich Velotis, that's the handle there. And then to learn about the book that I've recently written, The Deeply Formed Life and forthcoming books, they can go to just richvelotis.com and uh, see what's happening on those sites there. Pastor Rich, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for your work that you're doing. Such an inspiration to me. It always stirs my imagination to chat with you. So thank you so much. Thanks, Nikki. It was a joy to be here with you. Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. Our music was created by Andre Henry, and our show is produced by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and if you want to find out more about our work, visit the website at christiansforsocialaction.org.